9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City. We are joined today by Dmitry Alperovich, who is the executive chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator and was the co-founder of CrowdStrike. We'll be joined in a little bit by David Sanger, who's currently at a White House press conference. We were going to be joined by Rosa Brooks, who's had to go deal with a family issue. So it's just you and me here to start out, Dimitri. And uh, that's good because I've been interested. You've been drawn into providing real-time commentary of what's going on in Ukraine. I think it's been very uh, smart and informed. And I just thought it'd be useful to hear your take on where you think things stand now with President Zelensky about to address the U.S. Congress tomorrow. You know, unfortunately, I, I don't think things are in a good position for him or for the people of Ukraine. The reality is that despite the complete incompetence of the Russian planning for this invasion, the numerous problems they're having with logistics, with morale, with the assumptions that they had made about the fact that they thought the Ukrainian armed forces would just surrender and melt away. None of this, of course, has happened. But nevertheless, despite all those issues, they're making significant progress, taking more and more territory, surrounding cities, and now pummeling them into oblivion from the air, from artillery strikes, multiple launch rocket systems, and causing, of course, numerous, numerous civilian casualties. And just today, we had several journalists, unfortunately, who were killed in Kiev, an American journalist and a Ukrainian one. So this is going to get much worse, unfortunately, because the Russians have really done away with the pretext that they at all care about civilian casualties and now are just engaging in indiscriminate firing into those cities. And what I really worry about is the supply situation in those cities. In Mariupol in particular, which is completely surrounded, food, water, medicine are in very short supply. Even in Kiev, which is not yet fully surrounded, things are getting pretty dicey. So things are going to get uh, much, much worse in the coming weeks, unfortunately, for the people in Ukraine, particularly those who are in the cities that are being seized right now. I think that seems inevitable, but it also seems to me to be part of the strategy. And I think one of the things that strikes me as I watch it is that there's a kind of a perception that the West and Ukraine are reactive and that all the decisions are left to Putin. But the reality is that by embracing the strategy that they've embraced by necessity, Ukraine can slow Russia's advance and can promise Russia a long insurgency they can never win. And the West can limit where Russia can go by virtue of NATO and supply Ukraine so that it's able to continue with slowing the advance and fighting the insurgency. And then on top of that, imposing sanctions. And so at the end of the day, time is the ally, even though the human cost is 
very high. But there does seem to be a, a strategy here, which is we don't often hear articulated because the number of scenarios for Russian victory are very limited, aren't they? Well, I think the maximalist goals that Putin had at the early stage of this campaign, which is to roll into Kiev, replace or potentially even kill Zelensky and put in a puppet government that is pro-Russian, those are out the window. I think they're appreciating, even in the Kremlin, that that is not doable. And in fact, the fact that you're seeing right now them target the military industrial base, factories that produce aircraft, tanks, and so forth, I think is an indication of that because they're truly trying to demilitarize Ukraine, as, as they called it out initially. They wouldn't be doing that if they thought that they could actually take over the country and have those factories once again be plugged into Russian military supply chain, which they were very tightly integrated into prior to 2014. The reason that they're targeting them, I think, is, is uh, an implicit acknowledgement that those initial plans are not going to happen. And I think now Putin is looking at what he can do to put additional pressure on Zelensky to do some sort of compromise, potentially on NATO. And Zelensky has been making a number of comments in the last week, even just today, saying that he now believes that Ukraine will never join NATO. Of course, I think that was always the reality, but he's now acknowledging that. So it's much easier for him to compromise on some sort of guarantee to Russia about NATO expansion. And you know, he's even made comments that people in the Donbass that are pro-Russian, he would not necessarily be in the way of them being part of Russia. So those are the types of things that can be somewhat encouraging. So, David, we were talking a little bit about scenarios for Ukraine and Putin's adapting strategy and, and ours. We also mentioned that Zelensky is coming tomorrow to speak to the Congress. I know you just came out of a press conference. What's the state of play in your mind in Ukraine right now? The discussions about trying to put together a humanitarian corridor and so forth are ongoing. But I think the big debate that's underway right now, David, is whether or not Putin's really interested in this or whether he just wants to have the appearance of a negotiation underway while he still pounds away at the, at the cities. He seemed to indicate earlier today that he didn't think that anything that he was hearing out of Kiev, he won't mention Zelensky's name, was terribly serious. So that makes you think that he thinks he can get away with this some more. We wrote a fairly lengthy piece that appeared uh, Sunday on our website, Monday in the, in the Times, about the different scenarios. And I guess if I had to summarize it, it would come down to a diplomatic solution, which would be appealing only to, to Putin, only if he has actually, at this point, come to the conclusion that he's going back to a narrower set of, of strategic objectives, basically to grab the South and Southeast. You know, what he has said, of course, to the Ukrainians is that they would have to recognize Crimea as uh, Russian territory, that they would have to recognize the two separatist territories as independent states, and that he would have to uh, agree to neutrality. I actually think the last one, the agreement on neutrality, is that big a problem for Zelensky at this point. He keeps making comments along the line of he has given up long ago having to the chance to join NATO. Be interesting to see how he navigates that in his Zoom address to, to Congress tomorrow. The other options, of course, are that Putin continues to pound away at Kiev, thinking that he will be in a much better negotiating position if he has toppled the capital. 
and that he still has a chance to take either the entire country or most of it. I don't think he's got the capability to hold the West, but he may be able to force the Zelensky government to be basically running a a rump version of, of Ukraine. And then there's the worrisome stuff, which is, does he stop at Ukraine? Does he go on into Moldova? Does he return to Georgia? And of course, does he make use of other weapons, chemical, biological, or even a tactical nuclear weapon? I would have to say to you that I have heard more people in the defense establishment discuss the possibility of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon at some point in this conflict more in the past two weeks than I have heard in the past 27 years. Yeah, I had a conversation with a senior U.S. government official today, and it echoed that. But I do think that the the prevailing view, Dimitri, is that Putin is not really interested in negotiating, uh, that he does want to find himself in a better position. But I also think the view is that Kiev probably would take weeks, if not months, of urban warfare for it to fall, and that it's unlikely that he's going to be in a very positive situation, although it may be that the toll he inflicts is so great that people will be willing to consider some of these so-called off-ramps. What is the prospect based on what you see for Kiev? Kiev could potentially hold out. Uh, I'm not even clear that the Russians would have the forces to take Kiev. They could certainly destroy it. But even from rubble, you can still fight, uh, as as we've seen many times over the years. Mosul, most recently with with the ISIS uh, fighters fighting for nine months, the Iraqis, um, and ultimately, obviously, getting thrown out of Iraq. But, But it took a long time. So the Russians facing Significant military capabilities that the Ukrainians have put into Kiev, armored vehicles, a lot of forces are going to have a very, very tough time to actually take the city. It would be a block by block fight, would be very brutal, very costly to them. So I'm not sure that they will actually go down that path. I think they're starting to appreciate just looking at Mariupol, a city that is much smaller in a region that they thought would be much more amenable to Russian rule, Russian speaking close to the Donbass, and yet they're having a hell of a time trying to um, take that city. So that might be a little bit of a cold water effect uh, that they're experiencing uh, for what things are going to be like in Kiev once they fully surround it. They may think that once they fully surround it and once they starve it to death, once they run out of food and water, that they will surrender. That's potentially a possibility. And if you look at what they're doing in Mariupol, they're not letting in convoys of supplies. Uh, Zelensky has been trying to get uh, those convoys into the city for three days now. The Russians have blocked it. So the starvation strategy seems to be uh, in employment uh, by them there. I will say this, though. I do think that the negotiated solution becomes less and less likely the longer this goes on, purely for the reason that the more territory that Putin takes, and if Mariupol does fall and he's able to connect Donbass with Crimea and establish this bridge to Crimea as he takes more territory in the south, I just don't see him giving it up or giving it up easily. So I think the price will keep going higher and higher for Zelensky to actually accept the negotiated solution. So if today it may be Crimea, it may be Donbass, a week from now, it may be much higher and and more than he can tolerate. David, it was announced today that uh, 
President Biden is going to go to a NATO summit that will take place in nine days, and that this is a special emergency summit to address both NATO's internal preparations, defenses, but also how to support Ukraine. In conversations I've had with European leaders, all of them have emphasized how much closer they are to the battle than the U.S. And in fact, they have said to me things like, if Putin were to use a chemical weapon, Europe might lead the way towards some kind of escalation in a way the U.S. would not. What do you expect out of the NATO summit? So last night, as the White House was beginning to try to get this whole summit together, what I was hearing from Europeans, so what exactly is it we're supposed to accomplish at this summit? Is this supposed to be something that makes decisions about much more beefed up and permanent NATO forces uh, along what would be basically a new borderline with Russia if Russia succeeds at taking Ukraine? Is it supposed to be about handling the refugees? Is it supposed to be a cheering section for the president to say, this is why we have alliances and this is why he needed to go reinvigorate them after Trump? Is it all three of those? And they were really running around trying to come up with what could be a reasonable justification for the summit. I am sure that between now and Thursday, they, that creative minds will come up with, with what this should be. But I think mostly what it is, is the president's conviction that alliances do not come together by themselves. They have to be made to happen. And he thinks that he made this one happen and that it may be one of the great, greatest accomplishments of his presidency, particularly if his presidency is only one term. So I think that's what it's about. I think the president will not simply go to Brussels. I would be shocked if he did not end up in Poland or Romania or someplace like that and talk to a number of the refugees coming out. Yeah, speaking of that, uh, Dimitri, I, I thought it was quite interesting that three European leaders from states that uh, border or are close to Ukraine are actually going to Kiev to meet with Zelensky at some considerable risk. What's the message there? Well, obviously, they're expressing support for Ukraine. All of these countries are taking in a lot of refugees. In fact, Poland is just about overrun with refugees from Ukraine, not clear that they can actually take in any more. And uh, they're very concerned that Putin will not stop at Ukraine and will go further. I don't think that's a realistic concern, given all the problems that Russian military is experiencing in Ukraine right now, and that they've allocated 75% of their battalion tactical groups to Ukraine's effort and probably have incurred at least 10% casualties between KIA killed and, and wounded. I don't think that they're going to be in a rush to invade any NATO country anytime soon, especially with all the equipment that they've, they've lost already just in the last two weeks and, and change. But, but those countries obviously are bordering Russia. They've experienced occupation by Russia throughout the Cold War. So their concerns are off the charts right now. David, one of the things that it seems likely to expect over the course of the next several weeks, because Putin doesn't really have the option of seizing and holding that he did at the outset or thought he had at the outset is greater destruction. But with that destruction and setting aside the issue of 
of escalation by using chemical weapons or by using tactical nuclear weapons, for example, comes the prospect of greater atrocities. Uh, you've got a bunch of Chechens who have entered the country who are notorious for their brutality. Uh, he's inviting in a bunch of Syrians with a similar reputation. The question is, and you know, it sort of goes back to what Dimitri was posing, do two weeks more or three or four or five weeks more of brutality create pressure on Zelensky to accept a solution or create resolve never to accept a solution? It's a hard call, David. First of all, there's enough to keep war crimes lawyers busy already now for the next 20 years. So whether Putin decides that he's going to go ahead another two weeks or another two years, I think it's clear that there's a, a significant case for war crimes already. Probably one of the clearest cases we've seen in many years. For Zelensky, it strikes me that the debate is close to what you described, but not just what you described there. It is that right now he's still holding Kiev. So if you think that a month from now he will be in a worse negotiating position than he is today, then you would think this would be the good time to negotiate an agreement. If he thinks, in fact, that he's going to wear Putin out uh, or that the Chinese are not going to come into Putin's aid, or that Putin in some ways would give up, though that would seem uncharacteristic for him when he is backed into a corner, then he might decide to continue fighting on. I think it's a really painful choice for Zelensky because he's weighing chopping off a third of his country and giving it to the Russians versus the kind of horrific casualties we've seen among the Ukrainian people, among defenseless people, and uh, more of that coming. Right. And having those people die in vain, just as a, as a side question here, Dimitri, one of the goals that Putin had at the outset was getting rid of Zelensky and putting his own person in. One of the challenges, apparently, for Ukraine and, and those seeking to ensure a stable defense against, against the Russians is that the law in Ukraine the succession is from the president to the speaker to an election. So if you decapitate the government, you lose the top two people in the government, you, you know, you're, you're sort of at a loss because you have to go to an election, which will never happen in the middle of a war. And there's no reason to believe that's not still Putin's objective. I would say, David, you're assuming a lot here and primarily that Putin is going to follow the Ukrainian constitution if he actually manages to take the country. And uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that. He's actually said that the government in Kiev uh, is illegitimate. He views everything that has happened since the Maidan protests in 2014, a coup. So, you know, he would he could easily say that, you know, we're going to have a clean slate here. No, it's not a, that- I'm not raising it as a question for Putin. He doesn't give a shit about international law. It, it's, a, it's an issue for the international community regarding who they support, because if they say there's going to be a government in exile, you know, they want to follow the law and it becomes a problem. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think there are a couple of problems here, starting with the fact that he can no longer pick a puppet regime that will survive 
without you know Russian troops remaining insignificant force in Ukraine fighting insurgencies probably forever. And, and that's not something that he can sustain. And in fact, he may not even have anyone to pick. I mean, I'm sure he'll find someone, but the reality is that a lot of the pro-Russian politicians in the Ukrainian Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, that he probably would have thought would, would make a, a good candidate for a puppet government have now come out uh, strongly opposed to this invasion and have uh, supported Zelensky in the fight uh, against the Russians. So even the people that he thought would be supporters have turned out to sw- have switched sides on him. So I think he's in a huge predicament here. He can't install the government, even if he manages to pick someone. He can't really support them forever. And you're right, there won't be any international recognitions for them. David, you mentioned China a moment ago. Yesterday, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with his Chinese counterpart in Rome for seven hours. It was a pre-planned meeting, but Ukraine was clearly a dominant subject during the course of this meeting. I think the U.S. went into the meeting, or some of the leaders in the U.S. went into the meeting, not exactly clear where China was going to come out on this because intelligence had said, and and Bill Burns, that of the CIA, had reported this to the Senate Intelligence Committee, that the Chinese were shocked by how badly the Russians were doing and, and were, you know, sort of inclined in some respects to distance themselves. You know, on the other hand, Putin and and Xi had, you know, big embrace before all this. Clearly, Xi gave him the thumbs up beforehand. And there was the these intelligence, or there were these intelligence reports of Russian requests for China to support. The readout from yesterday's meeting was the Chinese are inclined to support Russia. They're not inclined to play a productive role. What's your take on this and its significance? So I read the readout a little bit differently. Um, I think that the Chinese are on uh, the horns of a dilemma here. I think they recognize that they signed up with Vladimir Putin just before he became basically the most reviled person on the geopolitical stage. And they're wondering the degree to which that taints them. Putin may not care much about his international image, but she does. And the Chinese do, because they're trying to win over converts to their cause around the world. That said, I think she's concluded that Putin plays an important role for him because he is a key part of the anti-American, anti-Western axis. So their choice there is active support of Putin versus staying on the sidelines. If I was him, I think I would try to step in and portray myself as the interlocutor, the negotiator, the peacemaker, right? Because they've got to get this problem off their plate. They've got relatively decent relationships with the Ukrainians. They have seen that the French, the uh, Germans, the Israelis are not getting very far. I suspect that they may be the only country that Putin would feel he had to listen to. So I wouldn't be surprised if they make their way to at least trying to play some kind of diplomatic role here. That doesn't mean they won't be supporting Putin in some way or indirectly on the side, or they won't set up financial arrangements or uh, find other alternatives like that. But I think they recognize the risk of actually sending him weapons. I wrote a piece on this that went out last night and this morning based on some reporting of my own. 
And I have to say, the, the readout, the official readout of the meeting was one thing, but the impression of people who were in the meeting was apparently something else. The feedback I got was that China was inclined, not inclined to be helpful, that they had thrown them fully in with Putin, and that when they were spoken to about economic and military aid, the response was not encouraging. So that's, that's what I got. Dimitri, you were about to respond. Well, uh, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi actually said this morning, and I quote, China is not a party to the Ukraine crisis. We don't want the sanctions to pose an impact on China. And that's what I've been hearing as well, that they are very concerned about secondary sanctions. That doesn't mean that they will offer no support to Putin. I think in cases where it's strategically important to them, particularly the energy sector and where they frankly see huge bargains to, to be had because the Western companies like BP and Shell have pulled out of major projects in Russia, they can step in and, and get the equity positions for pennies on the dollar. I think they will do so, but I don't think that this is going to be wholehearted, full-on support of the Russian economy to evade sanctions because they, they worry about the blowback on them. In fact, we've already seen that where, for example, uh, on aircraft maintenance issues, the Russians have asked them for help because they've been cut off from Boeing and Airbus on supply of maintenance parts, and the Chinese have said no. And I think they'll say no on a lot of things that they don't view as critical to their core interests. And I actually disagree with David. I don't think they're going to get involved in a mediation strategy of this conflict. I think they're perfectly content to stay out of it and let the West fight with Russia and uh, take strategic benefits where they can find them, including with bargains in Russia. But they're also preoccupied domestically right now. They've got this party Congress coming up in October. That is all they're obsessed about. And of course, they've got huge COVID issues, the highest number of cases that they've had since the beginning of the pandemic because of their zero COVID strategy. So I think they've got plenty of internal problems to deal with without focusing on someone else's. This is the point in the show where we normally take a little bit of a break and say goodbye to the folks who are listening from the general public and encourage them if they want to listen to the rest of this and other broadcasts, go click on the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership so they can hear the remaining third of the broadcast and all other broadcasts and get all the other benefits of unique content that go to members. So we encourage you to do that if you're not a member. And if you are a member, stand by. We'll be right back. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed.